Scripture reading this morning is Matthew 16. We'll be reading the whole chapter. Stand with you, me as if you are able for the, in honor of the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 16. Beginning in verse 1. Says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Lord bless the reading of his word. <sighs> 
Thank you, Justin. I know we do the scripture reading every week as a standard book of Matthew, but I feel like that really related a lot to my sermon today, coincidentally. Here we go. (laughs) My sermon today is titled, Why Are We Here? I think it's a very important question that most of us have asked at one point or another. It's a foundation of what we base our life on, what we do every day and why why we go about what we do every day. What is our purpose on this planet? You know, the most popular question is, what is the meaning of life? I know you've all heard that. In a popular novel-turned-film, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, they ask a supercomputer what the meaning of life is, and the computer actually has an answer for them, and it's 42. (laughs) It's the basic thought process of an atheist, that our lives are so meaningless that they can be summed up into a generic numerical term. These are questions that we have all asked ourselves at some point, coming up with all kinds of different answers, some of which lead us even further away from Jesus. In the sermon today, we will delve into Matthew 28, 16 through 20, a passage you all well know as the Great Commission. Scholars believe that Matthew intentionally places this passage at the end of his gospel. Stuart Webster explains in his commentary that Matthew was a firm believer in the last words of a book leaving a lasting impression on the reader. For this reason, he concluded his gospel with a very important command from Jesus. You will see this same idea reflected at the end of Mark's gospel. Turn with me to Mark chapter 16, verses 14 through 20. Mark 16:14-20 Mark 16 starting at verse 14 says Afterward he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had saw him after he had risen and he said to them Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover." So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. It is no coincidence that both of these gospels end with Jesus' command for us to spread the word. Even though Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, I personally feel like the Great Commission is one of the most important directives that we are given in the entire Bible. These are our marching orders for everyday life. With that being said, let's go to the word for today's passage. Matthew 28, 16-20 says, 
Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and for giving me this chance to, to bring your message to our congregation, Father. And thank you for everything you do for us every single day, Father, and for looking over us and protecting us as you do. Help us to have an open mind to this message, Father, and to let it weigh on our hearts as you intend it to. Help us to open the eyes of others who need your healing and your spirit in their life, Father. Be with us this week as we go about our day and just watch over us, Father. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray, amen. amen. This passage starts with an opening that sets the stage for Christ's last resurrection appearance. Jesus asked his disciples to meet him in a mountain near Galilee for his final command because he knew they would become the pillars of Christianity. Let's start by setting the stage of this final meeting between Christ and his disciples. Matthew 28:16 states, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Of course, by this time, Judas had already committed suicide over the guilt of being, having betrayed Jesus. Hence, only the eleven disciples. Jesus had instructed them to come to this mountain after leading many of his followers to Galilee. In the first verse, you might notice a glaring omission from the text. The name of the mountain isn't included. According to Webster, Matthew actually does this on purpose to make sure that the focus of what he is considered the most important passage in his gospel remains on Christ and his command. This is a trend that we will see repeated throughout the entire passage. As we move on to the second verse in the passage, we will see a very profound idea expressed by Matthew in this passage. The verse says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. As they were coming up the mountain, they saw Jesus. Imagine their excitement. They were tired, hungry, probably miserable, but at the mere sight of our Savior, they started worshipping him. But if you notice, the second part of the verse says, but some doubted. These are the same men, these same men had already seen and spoken to the resurrected Christ. Here he was again, just like he promised them he would be, and yet some doubted. The word doubt means to duplicate, to be of two minds, or to hesitate. They all longed to believe, yet for some, their faith wasn't strong enough to convince the rational side of their mind that Jesus had been resurrected. Their human brain couldn't compute resurrection, like the supercomputer can compute our entire lives. I think that this is a large part of what makes the Great Commission so hard for us now. Our faith in his command isn't strong enough for our brains to prioritize it. If you knew we had only weeks until the second coming, wouldn't that kick us into gear to get us out there and start guiding the lost? What would it take to make us 
frantically spread the gospel to everyone around us. You're sitting here listening intently, but how many of us are going to leave here today and tell the next person we see about Jesus? My question to you now is, if Jesus was to appear on this altar right now, would you be one of his worshipers or would you be part of the some that doubted? I would hope that we would all worship him, but the sad truth is that some of us, even in this sanctuary, still have doubts. If you were asked about your faith, most of us would answer, we believe in Jesus in the Bible 100%. Right, everybody? <laughs> Let me give you a little illustration. Some of you have probably heard this illustration several times. We all know that water is a great conductor of electricity. So if any of us were walking down the street and saw a person standing ankle deep in a puddle about to grab a live power line that's jumping around on the ground, we would shout, hey, don't grab that, you're going to get electrocuted, right? This is 100% faith. We know for a fact that if they grab that hot wire, they will probably die. So we, in, we react intensely. Some of us would even take action to save the person at our own risk. That, my friends, is 100% faith. So if we're at work or wherever and know that some of our coworkers or friends or family are not believers and are living very sinful lives with no remorse, isn't that just like their spirit standing ankle deep in a puddle about to grab a hot wire? Why don't we shout at them? Why don't we take action to save their eternal soul? This is what Christ commanded us to do, as we will see in the last three verses. In the third verse of the passage, Matthew writes, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It is very important that Jesus establishes his authority before giving us his command. Think about how often we see this demonstrated today. What is the first thing that a cop yells at a suspect? Police, right? And then what is the next word? Freeze. We see this in TV shows and even on the news every day. But as most of you know, I have some firsthand experience with this situation. Let me tell you, it's not a fun place to be. Just as Jesus did, the cop establishes his authority before giving his command. We as humans are great thinkers by God's grace. Unfortunately, this means that we often question commands from others. How many times have you told your kids to do something only for them to ask why, right? For this reason, if we want someone to follow a command without question, we establish our authority over them first. Jesus is telling us, look, I'm the boss. What I'm about to say next is important. Looking again to the scholars, Webster tells us, Matthew did not record Jesus' ascension into heaven as it likely would have distracted from his emphasis in 28, 18 through 20. He wanted the Great Commission to linger in people's minds as they finished his gospel. Jesus had a big job in mind for his followers. Let us think about that statement for a minute. If you were writing a book meant to convince people that this guy you knew was the Son of God, wouldn't including the part about his ascension into heaven been important? Even possibly a more storybook ending to the gospel? Instead, Matthew chooses to leave us with Christ's command to spread the word to the corners of the earth. He decided that this was more important than even describing Jesus' ascension into heaven. 
We see in the gospel, in Mark's great commission, he does record the ascension into heaven, but Matthew chooses to leave that part out. Webster continues in his, in his commentary, all is a key word in verses 20, or 18 through 20. It emphasizes Jesus' divine identity, all authority, all nations, all things. Before issuing his commission, Jesus lays the foundation for the success of their future ministry. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This was critically important. Without the Messiah's authority, the mission of the disciples and our mission today would be doomed to failure. Our authority comes from Jesus, the King of Kings. This fact alone should empower us to spread our faith like a wildfire. Just imagine if even just us in this church were intentionally telling as many people as we could every single day about how Christ died for our sins. Even though most of them may not respond positively, just think of all the souls we could save for the ones that were just waiting on someone to open their eyes. We have to be doing this every single day. Think of the first person that brought Christ into your life. For some of you, you may have been children. For me personally, it was only five and a half years ago. Now think about how scary it would be if that person had not had the courage to bring up the gospel. Now for the real heart wrencher. Think about a time when you considered talking about our Savior with someone and decided not to. I'm not trying to manipulate y'all or guilt trip you, but as I studied this passage, I just couldn't help but think about all of the people in my life that I have had the chance to witness to, but I was too busy or too embarrassed. Flat out just lacked the courage to save someone from an eternity in hell. We talk about the second coming, even joke about it coming soon when life is tough. But honestly, how many of you would be begging for more time to go and try to save family members or friends if Jesus came back tomorrow? In Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, he gives us a very straightforward answer to when the second coming will be. Many of y'all probably know this verse very well. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Like a thief in the night. Doesn't sound like we will get much of a warning to make sure that we have led every family member or friend to Christ. But Christ didn't even ask us to spread the word to the people we loved. He commanded us to spread the word to everyone. Do you see now how far removed we are as a church body from fulfilling Jesus' command? The fourth verse of the passage starts the command itself. Christ's command for us to make disciples. Matthew 28, 19 states, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is a threefold command, with the main verb in the verse being make disciples. But we are also commanded to go and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I love the way that Jesus makes a declaration of the Trinity here. According to Webster, 
the central command of this verse is to make disciples. At the heart of our mission is the reproduction in others of what Jesus has produced in us. Faith, obedience, growth, authority, compassion, love, and a bold, truthful message as his witnesses. They were learners commanded to produce learners, as we are now. What does it mean to make disciples? When Jesus tells us to make disciples, he is expecting the belief in him to increase exponentially. He wants us to share with others what he has done in our lives. Along with bringing them the gospel, that's all he's really asking us to do. Before we see the main verb, we see the participle go. According to Webster, in this context, context, the Greek participle is best rendered when you have gone. Going is one of the three means by which to fulfill the central command to make disciples. Going means more than traveling across geographical borders, although this is part of Jesus' meaning. The point is that we believers are active. We are not inert. Going means crossing the boundaries to make disciples. Going across the street. Going to dinner with an unbelieving friend. Going into the inner city. Well, hold on. I won't blame my wife for numbering my pages wrong. I put them in wrong order. That's fine. (laughs) Going into the inner city. Going beyond one's comfort zone to make the gospel accessible to the lost. Living life is going with a purpose every day. He is not saying to just go to another country to spread the word. He wants us to spread the word as we go about our daily lives. Of course, that could also mean going to Honduras on a mission trip every year. But to think that one week a year is completely fulfilling Christ's mission mission for us is ludicrous. Jesus wants us to spread the word each and every day to every person that we can. The fifth and final verse of the Great Commission continues with Christ's command for us, giving a third command to teach, and also reassurance that he will be with us through it all. Matthew 28.20 says, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Looking back to Webster's commentary, he tells us that Jesus instructed us not only to teach content, but to train people into obedient action, teaching them to keep everything I have commanded you. The teachings of Jesus recorded in Matthew are the essence of the practical teaching we are to pass on to new disciples. There is much more teaching from Scripture beyond Matthew that the church needs, but his teaching in Matthew serves as a strong foundation. Personally, I can't wait for Brother Justin's two-year exposition of Matthew. No pressure. (laughs) The cornerstone of this great foundation is the last piece added, the Great Commission. Webster continues, Matthew's last words are a concluding promise from the Messiah King. 
surely adds a note of assurance similar to Jesus's, I will tell you the truth. A paraphrase of the phrase, I am with you always, would read, I myself am continually with you always until the end of the age. Among other things, Jesus claimed omnipresence, again laying claim to deity. He will be with us every step of the way. I am with you always reminds us of the great promises to saints of old like Moses and Joshua. Jesus leaves us with this promise as a royal seal for us to wear every day. A promise that no matter how bad we are persecuted for spreading his word, he will always be with us. Always. Just like how he expects us to always witness to others. So in conclusion, just as Matthew kept the focus on God's word, I wanted to do the same. The most important contribution a pastor can make to the congregation, in my opinion, is an understanding of God's word. This is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible, but it's not very long. Just to put this in perspective for y'all, my uh, ESV Bible has about 757,439 words, according to Google. I didn't count them. The entire Great Commission passage is only 94 words. I did count those. This is about 0.0001% of the Bible. The in Matthew managed to sum up our mission in Christ in a tweet. But seriously, this is a very important passage in Scripture for us as Christians because it is a direct command from Jesus. He came here by his, of his own free will lived a selfless life for over 30 years on this planet, only to be brutally murdered for our sins. He did all of this for us, and let's be honest, in comparison, he doesn't ask much in return. He gave us a mission in this passage, a direction to take our lives that would further the glory of God's kingdom. Just as important as it is to spread the word, we always have to remember to keep ourselves full of the Spirit so that we can properly relay that to others. Matthew relates an illustration from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of his Gospel that illustrates this beautifully. Turn with me, if you can, to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 13, it says... You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown down and trampled under people's feet. What does this verse say about us as modern Christians? Let's break it down. Most everyone loves salt. Being somebody with high blood pressure, salt is my enemy at this point. But I relish when I do get to eat it, when my wife lets me. But how good would salt be if it lost its saltiness? Isn't that the core reason of its existence as salt? So if salt has lost its saltiness, it cannot fulfill its intended purpose in life. Therefore, as Jesus tells us here, it is only fit to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
This is one of my favorite illustrations because it is so straightforward. If we lose our saltiness, how can we possibly fulfill God's plan in our lives? Luckily for us, Jesus came and died for our sins, giving us infinite grace as a path back to our saltiness. Matthew continues in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is very intentional in the delivery of his illustrations. Once the need for us to renew our faith has been established, he goes on to describe why it is so important for us to remain strong in our convictions. We are the light of the world. Whatever we do shines brightly to others, whether it be positive actions or negative. We as Christians must always remember this. By a show of hands, how many people are in here are parents? Most of us. I have four children myself, as y'all know, and I'm sure we would all agree that our children mimic most of our actions, often into adulthood. And I think that we would also all agree that they seem to be better at mimicking the negative aspects of our personality, right? I remember when Scotty was only three years old, he would mumble out a whole paragraph, and the only word that was perfectly articulated would be the one cuss word he heard me say. It's funny the first few times, but eventually it weighs on your soul. All of us were those impressionable children once, and I don't think any of us have grown out of it as much as we would like to believe. We have to always remember that while Jesus commands us to spread his word, that it is on his schedule and not ours. I can tell you from personal experience that we never know when our moment of discipleship will come. It is almost never something that we plan, although it can be, and sometimes it may not even be obvious in the moment, but God is always using us to lead others. When that moment comes, someone sees you and thinks, they go to church, right? Do you really, do you want their next thought to be, I want to see what church is about, or are they really doing that? There is no telling how many times any of us have been moments away from changing someone's life, literally saving their soul, and they decided not to approach us because of whatever negative situation we were involved in? I know that I have a more sinful past than most, but I believe that we can all relate to this on some level. The most important thing I wanted to get across today is that I love y'all, and I love all of your families. But there is no excuse for us allowing them to live eternally separated from God in heaven. If we fail to share the gospel with them, it's our fault. Before I believed in Christianity, I always thought that it was unfair for someone in a distant country that had never had the opportunity to even hear of Christ should go to hell, even if they were a good person and made good choices their whole life. One of the first things I learned when I became a Christian was that if a good person goes to hell because they never heard of Christ, it's my fault. 
I lost my place. We as Christians are responsible for those lost souls. God will provide the means if we are willing to put forth the effort, which we've all seen every year in the Honduras mission trip when we don't know how we're going to get the money together. It always comes in every single year. And I'm not standing up here preaching this to y'all alone. Trust me, I'm preaching this to myself as well. Every year when we go to Honduras, I get pumped up to disciple when we get back, as everybody that's been to Honduras with me knows. And every year, life gets in the way. We get back and work, family. I end up putting my plans on the back burner. All of a sudden, it's time to go back to Honduras and I didn't fulfill any of the dreams that I had on the way home last year. It truly amazes me how we can prioritize work and life over Christ so easily. And yet, if anyone asks us what the most important thing in our life is, most of us would answer emphatically, Jesus. Imagine if someone asked you, which was more important, your job or Jesus? Wouldn't they be dumbfounded? If one of us said our job, and yet that is how they see us live our lives. So while we could explain and give excuse after excuse to the person who asked us that question, the untold numbers of others that simply observe our lives and never receive the explanation can only assume that Jesus is not very high on our priority list. It is so important for us to realize this and to fulfill Christ's command for us to go and spread the word. Matthew shows us a great example of how committed we should be earlier in his gospel. In Matthew chapter 4, we find Jesus gathering his disciples. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18, says... While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Let's pause there for a moment. Just think about that. Here we have Peter and Andrew doing their daily work as fishermen. The text doesn't tell us if they had a wife or kids. Um, Justin later told me that uh, Peter did have a wife and family. But it does tell us that no matter what their current circumstances were, they immediately dropped what they were doing and started following Jesus. How many of us would drop what we were doing at work, drop what we were doing in our lives, to follow Jesus. Now granted, most of us would if Christ actually walked into our office and asked us to. But just because he is not physically here leading us, he gave us, he is not physically here leading us, he gave the great commission as an eternal command to us, his people, to spread the good news that we are saved. Listen everyone, like I said, I am preaching this to myself as much as I am preaching it to you. We all have to fulfill this command. And to fulfill it, we have to make it our top priority every single day. Let us pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and thank you for this opportunity. Please let my sermon, your sermon that I spoke, sink into the hearts of the congregation, Father, and let it lead them to be disciples for you, to do what you've commanded us to do, Father, to lead others to you, and to teach them to lead others to you, to where your kingdom can grow exponentially as you intended. Please be with us, watch over us, and protect us as we go about this mission, Father. And give us the courage and strength to bring your word to people that need it, to save their souls. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.